This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Belize might be best known for its sandy beaches and turquoise waters, but its greatest gift is actually its diversity. There may be no other place on the planet with such an incredible combination of thrilling outdoor activities, natural wonders, and unique cultural history. I know this because I experienced it myself on my own trip to Belize. I'm a water lover, so I was drawn by the exceptional snorkeling and scuba diving. The country is home to the largest reef system in the Northern Hemisphere, where there are more than 500 species of fish. I had close encounters with sea turtles and spiny lobsters and a pair of black-tip reef sharks. But I had just as memorable adventures on shore, where I visited a Maya temple, explored caves with ancient artifacts, and slept in a treehouse. I also swam at the base of a waterfall and listened to howler monkeys in the rainforest. I love those guys. Today, Belize is inviting travelers to do all this and more through their new Tourism Gold Standard Program. This extensive program certifies enhanced health and safety standards of hotels, restaurants, and tour operators so you can enjoy a reliably safe vacation. They've also created a new Belize Travel Health app to make your logistics easy and hassle-free. Thanks to all these efforts, Belize was recently awarded a safe travel stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council in recognition of the country's enhanced health and cleanliness protocols. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonder of Belize at TravelBelize.org. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. I have a surprising confession to make for a guy who's been working for Outside Magazine for more than 20 years. I don't really get mountain climbing. I mean, I understand the appeal of being in a remarkable environment and the desire to challenge yourself physically and emotionally. But serious mountain climbing, the kind that has you risking your life to get to the top of a peak? Why? That question has been at the core of many outside stories. And the answers we get are always fascinating, even if they're not totally satisfying, which is why we keep asking. This week, we have an episode that offers perhaps the best response I've heard yet. It comes from Leah Tao, who, if you aren't familiar with her work, is one of the master storytellers in podcasting. For her long-running show, Strangers, She has been producing exceptional true stories since 2011, and she recently did a two-part piece about a most interesting and unusual woman from a most interesting and unusual family. It's a tale that presents a different way to think about the kinds of experiences that draw us to the mountains and to each other. We're going to share the first part of the story. You can find part two on Strangers, available wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're done listening to that, I highly recommend going to patreon.com slash strangerspodcast, where for a dollar a month, you can access Leah's incredible archive of stories, along with some of her most powerful new work. 
So here now is The Schmitz, part one, from Strangers. Please note that this episode includes subject matter and language that may not be suitable for younger listeners. On my way to the bridge, I was a little bit excited, a little bit nervous. I hopped out of the van. Uh, That's when the butterflies kind of started, and I climbed up onto the railing, so I was standing up on the railing. I remember a big truck came by, and I could feel it shake me. I blew on my hands because they were a little sweaty. I took a deep breath. I looked down, and then I looked out onto the horizon. Three, two, one, jump. Meet Sequoia Schmidt. She wasn't intending to harm herself. On the contrary, she does this every day, and I had asked her to describe that morning's jump. Each day, she goes down to the parent bridge, puts on a parachute, and climbs onto the narrow railing. That's one of the scariest parts of a jump, is slowly climbing onto the top of the railing with a 500-foot drop below you. Pretty terrifying. She leaps off, hurdles towards the ground in a free fall, and pitches her chute. And then by the time you're on the ground, just a full... And then that's when you get like a little bit of a, oh shit, that was an awesome jump. (laughs) Then Sequoia climbs back up the steep canyon walls. Jumping off the bridge is her daily exercise routine. And much like Sequoia herself, it's intense and out of the ordinary. But then, so was her entire family. Sequoia was born in New Zealand to American parents, and she was named for the large trees that accompany one's ascent into Yosemite National Park. Her brother Denali was named for Mount Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. Their dad, Marty Schmidt, was one of the top mountaineers in the world. He summited Mount Everest twice. He held speed records on Choyu, the sixth highest mountain on Earth, and Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America, where he completed the dangerous South Face. One time while solo climbing the mountain Makalu in the Himalayan range, Marty came across a party of three stranded climbers in bad condition, and he managed to bring each of them down to safety, one by one, before climbing up a fourth time to summit the mountain himself, all in one day. He had thousands of summits total, but one peak eluded him, the mountain in Pakistan with the rather unpoetic name K2 on the China-Pakistan border. K2 is the second highest mountain in the world after Mount Everest. And it's the deadliest. My father had a very strong relationship with K2. That was the love of his life, I think. Even his logo for his company was a picture of K2, and he had pictures all around the house of K2. His first attempt on K2 was in 1992, the year after I was born. And he made it up 100 meters below the summit, and he could see it. And he could feel the winds, 100-mile-an-hour winds blowing over the top ridge. And he knew that if he continued on, the winds would blow him off the mountain. And he told us this story many times when we were kids. And he said that K2 spoke to him that day. And she told him... It's not your time. Go home and raise your children. And one day you'll come back and be with me. And I always thought that meant that one day he would go back and summit the mountain. He 
He would make a second attempt later on, another failed attempt, before his final third attempt, where both he and my brother were swept away in an avalanche on the Abruzzi Ridge. K2 was Marty's Moba Dick, you might say. And the mountain took not only his life, but also that of his son Denali, who was just 25. This is part one of the story about this most unusual family, told not by the two who were swept away, of course, but by the one who was left behind, Captain Ahab's daughter, if you will. Though no doubt, Marty Schmidt was quite a bit more charming than Melville's mean old captain. My father never wore a shirt. He would always be topless, like everywhere. You go into a restaurant, he'd be topless. Picking me up from school, he'd be topless. And he had these, like, short, short climber shorts that he would wear. And he always wore um, a fanny pack. (laughs) And he made his own sandals out of recycled leather. And they had these long strings that he would wrap around his legs, crisscrossed. We used to call them Jesus sandals. Without even knowing who he was or what his name was or what he did for a living, he would always turn heads everywhere he went because he was uh, such a unique physical specimen. (laughs) I mean, he was like a hippie climber before hippie climbers were cool. You know, he had the van. He never drove anything but a van. And it always had a bed in the back and a stove. He was sponsored by MacPack before they were MacPack. I remember when, after he passed away, the first time I went to visit the headquarters, Alex, who's the CEO of MacPack, told me that one morning he knew that Dad was coming in and he, like, pulled the car in and he looked across the parking lot and Dad's van door was open and he was cooking eggs. (laughs) Alex went over to him and said, Marty, did you sleep here? He goes, of course I slept here. (laughs) We have an early meeting. (laughs) It was just so normal for Dad to be sleeping in his van everywhere he went. As you might imagine, Marty didn't coddle his kids. Far from it. When I was eight years old, I climbed Mount Whitney with my dad and my brother. And um, Mount Whitney is the tallest mountain in the contiguous United States. I mean, it's quite a high mountain. It's 14,500 about in elevation. I was complaining half of the way up, that's for sure. And I definitely remember on the summit, I was getting a bit of a nosebleed from the altitude. And I remember, you know, we came back down and we were packing up the van in the ranger station. And the ranger, like, leaned down. I remember him being like, oh, how old are you? And I was like, I'm eight years old. I'm about to be nine. And he was like, oh, you're the youngest person we know that's ever climbed Mount Whitney. And I was so proud of myself. I had, like, this big grin on my face. I was like, Dad, I was the youngest person to ever climb Whitney. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, but you didn't carry your pack all the way up. You handed me your pack, so it doesn't count. And I just remember being so disappointed in that. I mean, my dad was a purist when it came to mountaineering, right? Not using supplemental oxygen, not using um, any type of rope assistance or Sherpas or porters or anything like that. If you can't handle carrying your own gear, you probably shouldn't be on that mountain. And he was very adamant about that. Sequoia's mom has also had a rather exceptional life. 
You know, she's lived in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Kabul, Afghanistan, Borneo, Malaysia, Siberia, Ascension Island. Like, <laughs> you name it, she's probably been to it. When Sequoia was a kid, her mom spent much of her time working and living with indigenous tribes. I mean, I have memories of visiting the Rosebud Reservation when I was far out, like nine years old, and being in a sweat lodge with Chief Archie Fire Langier and being welcomed into things like the Sundance Ceremony. It was her mom's work that brought Sequoia's family to New Zealand. She was invited by the Ngāti Kahununu Iwi, which is a Māori tribe in New Zealand. And she was actually inducted into the tribe, which for a Pākehā woman, which is a white woman, that's a really big deal to be invited into a Māori tribe. My middle name is Karanima, which means first light of dawn. I was born at 6.06 in the morning on January 1st. And the elder at the time named me my middle name. Sequoia's parents split up when she was around six and Denali was around eight. And that marked the beginning of a long period of instability for the family. As a kid, Sequoia mostly took her dad's side, but she sees things in a more nuanced way now. I mean, when I was one year old and Denali was three years old, and she was teaching full-time and doing choreography work and trying to raise these two kids, and my dad was gone for nine months out of the year. And this was a time when, you know, the only form of communication was sat phones, and you usually didn't get a call from a sat phone until they were down at base camp and safe. Um, So she would go months without hearing anything, whether her husband was alive or dead on a mountain, while she's trying to take care of these two kids. That would drive me totally crazy. You know, my dad would use the word crazy quite a bit. She always saw the world a little bit different. And she would tell us that constantly. She would say, I'm different. I see the world different, and people don't understand different, and they try to label it. One of the many places that we lived was Denver, Colorado, for a period of about six or seven months. I was about eight years old, and I remember one night in the middle of the night, she shook me awake, and my brother was already awake, and... She said, okay, put on all black clothing and don't say a word. And I was asking her, why, why? And she said, shh, don't say a word. So I remember putting on all black clothing and I had a brown sock and I felt really bad because I had a brown sock and not a black sock. And she rubbed tiger balm on our wrists and she rushed us out to the car and she said, we're not allowed to speak because they're listening to us. And we hopped in the car, and we drove for what felt like a really long time. I remember my mom saying things like, the car behind us is following us. We have to turn on the radio really loud to speak because they're going to know exactly what we're saying. My mom started driving really erratically, and her whole body was shaking. And my brother had to grab the steering wheel of the car 
and pull the car over. And then the next thing I remember is a police officer telling me that we would go stay with some other people for a while. Where was Marty while all this was going on, you might wonder? Well, he was on Everest. And in fact, he went missing on Everest for a while before he reappeared. The next time Sequoia saw him was months later when he picked her up from foster care back in New Zealand. My dad had custody of us for a while. You know, he bought like this small little flat. It was just amazing. The hallway was a climbing wall and there was just this beautiful vegetable garden out front and the little studio space, pretty much the size of a cupboard. That's where dad slept and he slept with a a roll-out mattress futon on the floor. And then I had the biggest room when I was like a 10-year-old girl, you know, with a huge princess king-size bed. But then Marty would leave again on some new expedition for many months at a time, and Sequoia's days in the princess bed would come to an end. Marty tried to arrange for his kids to stay with people while he was gone, but in Sequoia's case, it usually blew up and she'd wind up back in foster care. I started getting into trouble and rebelling quite a bit. You know, you get exposed to stuff. My first foster home was maybe like seven other girls and probably about eight to ten other boys, and most of them quite a bit older than me. Like, I think I was the youngest one, and so they're all, you know, in the 12, 13, smoking already, rebellious kids. Behavior that I would soon mold to. Skipping school, smoking, all of that kind of stuff. Throughout these years, Denali remained in contact with his mother, and Sequoia mostly didn't. Her mom was there in some key moments in her life, but mainly Sequoia hitched her wagon to her dad, who came and went and gave his kids a remarkable amount of freedom. I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old, I wanted to go and live in Italy for a year. And dad was just like, okay, yeah, sounds good. I had a cousin who lived there. We went and spent a month together in China, and then I lived in, like, her basement apartment in Italy for a year when I was 12 by myself, like, going around Rome, taking the buses and the metros around Rome. At the time, it all seemed so normal to me. When Sequoia got back from Italy, her dad stopped trying to arrange for the kids when he left and simply let them stay alone at 13 and 15 years old. We would get ourselves up for school. We would cook ourselves dinner. We would do the grocery shopping. Like, all of that was 100% on our own. That kind of freedom is hard to revoke once it's been granted. I was out at a rave in the outskirts of Hawke's Bay. I think I was 13 or 14, maybe. He had gotten back from an expedition the night before, and... I knew that he was seeing someone who he, I think, had mentioned to me. And I remember coming home that night at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And my thing was, every time I'd come home when Dad was back from an expedition, I would just like knock on the side of his door just to let him know that I was home. So that was the thing that we had. And I like went to go into my room, which was down the hall. And then I heard a lady like yelling, hey, hey. And I turned around and there was a woman there who said, like, 
it's three o'clock in the morning. You don't knock on your father's door. What are you doing home so late? Blah, blah, blah. I just remember her like yelling at me. And I remember being like, who are you? And why are you in my house? <laughs> like, And then I just turned around and shut the door. And she slowly starts over the next day or two, you know, criticizing behavior, like interrupting our routine. And I don't take that very well. We get in a huge yelling match. My father's trying to break us up. But he is taking her side on a lot of things, I feel like. And she's saying things like, you let these kids run wild, they're feral. And him saying things like, well, I guess we should put in a little more discipline. And then I just remember being like, dude, I'm fucking grown up. Like, you can't discipline me now. It's a little late for that. I ended up punching her in the face. And then I ran out the door because I knew that she was about to call the cops on me. Sequoia didn't return to her dad's house after that night. She bounced around between friends' couches until she was accepted to an Australian performing arts high school and left the country. In Australia, she worked nights at KFC, lived in a small flat and attended school until she met a young boy and got pregnant. She had an abortion alone at 15 in Australia and was out of school for a bit. When she came back to school, the boy was with another girl, and Sequoia started acting out again, and she was eventually expelled from the school. I was woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning by the principal, and I was told that I had a flight that was going to take me back to New Zealand, where my father would be waiting for me at the airport. And the principal of the school, who had become almost like a father figure to me at the time, hopped on the plane with me. So when we landed, the principal was looking for my dad. Instead, there were a few police officers and some people waiting for me. And they said, um, Mr. Hopkins, we're here to escort Sequoia back to foster care. And he was just devastated. And he looked at me and he was like, I'm so sorry. Your father was supposed to be here. I'm so, so sorry. And I just remember looking at him being like, it's okay. I knew he wasn't going to be here. It's not a big deal. But of course, it was a big deal that her dad had chosen to put her in the custody of the authorities instead of dealing with her himself. And Sequoia was starting to crack a bit. Later that night, at the foster facility she was taken to, another girl stole two packs of cigarettes from her, and they got in a fist fight, and Sequoia ran away. She doesn't remember much after that, except that she spent a night at her mom's house, and the next day she found herself at the airport with the phone number of her maternal grandfather in Houston written on her arm. Many times since that night, her grandfather has told her what he knows about what happened, but her own memory has never returned. My grandfather just always tells me uh, I got a call from a security guard in an airport in New Zealand. We found a young girl walking around the airport, and she had your phone number written on her arm and she has her passport with her. And then he said that the security guard handed the phone to me, and Grandpa then asked me, um, do you want to come and live with us? And I said, yes, please. And he bought me a ticket, then the next flight leaving to the U.S. We'll be right back. Earlier, we talked about Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations 
in a country that's created a comprehensive and common sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. When I took my own trip to Belize, my most memorable experience was exploring a cave that held ancient Maya artifacts. It was called, well, it's best if I ask someone else to pronounce it. Aktun Tonichal Muknal. That's the cave of the stone altar. It's for those who really want to seek a thrill. That's Giselle Campbell-Steffen with the Belize Tourism Board. And she's right about the thrills. It's an hour-long hike through the rainforest to the cave with a couple of stream crossings. To enter the cave, you swim across a short pool. And then once you're inside, you wear a headlamp and a helmet. And there's more swimming. Once you reach into the main chamber, you're only allowed to wear socks. This is to preserve the integrity of the artifacts. Ceramic pottery, water vessels, tools, weapons. Their skeletal remains, as many as 14 have been discovered. Researchers believe the remains are from ancient sacrifices, dating back to around 1,100 years ago. Exploring the cave was one of the most exciting travel experiences I've ever had. And it was just one part of an amazing trip I took to Belize that also included exceptional snorkeling, relaxing days on a beach, great food, and very friendly people. Belize offers a remarkable variety of activities, including caves that are a lot easier to see, like the one that you float through in an inner tube. Learn more about the many adventures to be had in Belize and why the country was awarded the Safe Travel Stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council at TravelBelize.org. I remember landing in Houston, and I remember walking out of the arrivals, and I remember my grandfather being there. You know, he's an older Italian man, and everything you would imagine a grandfather to be like. A little bit pudgy around the edges, nice and fluffy. And like, um, I just remember walking out of the arrival and seeing him and feeling really safe. And my grandfather looking at me and smiling. When I was uh, in Australia, right before I got kicked out of the school, I like cut all my hair off. I just took scissors and sliced my hair off. I was almost to the point of bald. It was just tiny, short little pieces of hair. And, you know, by that point I had tattoos. I was smoking a pack a day. I thought he was going to look at me and be like, oh God, what happened to my granddaughter? But he didn't. He just smiled and I gave him a big hug. He had married a woman named Barbara a few years before that. She's about 20 years his junior. And I remember she hugged me and said hello and introduced herself. And then I remember she looked at me and she goes, wow, you reek. Let's get you a shower. (laughs) And like, um, I don't think I noticed until that moment. And then I smelled my armpit and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I really do stink. Barbie, you know, she calls herself the trophy wife. And they had quite a bit of freedom in their first few years of marriage with all his kids grown up. Suddenly, a 15-year-old shows up on their doorstep and um, not the easiest 15-year-old to deal with. And they took me in with open arms. So I really, really applaud her for that. And they provided stability. 
you know, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't easy. It wasn't like I came from this rebellious background and suddenly I'm a good girl in my grandfather's house. Not at all. I mean, my grandfather is the sweetest man on the planet. He attended Yale University for engineering and he is like a classic immigration success story. And it was very comforting and very jarring at the same time to have that influence in my life during that period. Going from working at KFC and eating KFC every night and scrounging by to having the whole third floor of his house in a beautiful neighborhood in Texas. They gave me a car for my 16th birthday. And, you know, they threw me this beautiful sweet 16 with a limousine and it took a lot for me to adapt to that. I remember one time I just had like this total temper tantrum. I was screaming and crying, I need a cigarette, I need a cigarette, I need a cigarette. And my grandfather looks at me and he goes, okay, what kind of cigarette would you like? And then he went out and bought me a pack of cigarettes. And my grandfather has never smoked a cigarette in his life, never smoked weed, never done anything rebellious in any way whatsoever. So I remember him walking back in the door and putting the cigarettes on the table. And he looked around the kitchen and he goes, let me find you a lighter. And I think that, I remember that moment very vividly. And I remember feeling like, like he understood me in a way that I'd never been understood before. And he would tell me things all the time, just little things that I'd never heard before, like, you will always have a home here. And, you know, there's nothing I would not do for you. Uh, And I lived for a year and a half on the third floor of their house and finished my senior year of high school in Texas And he, you know, he's a very big influence in my life still to this day. I just talked to him earlier this morning. And Barbara says all the time, she's wonderful. They like save all the newspaper clippings whenever my company has a success or my foundation has a success. And they save them all and they have them all framed and awards and stuff. And she tells me all the time how proud they are of how far I've come in life. And I would say the main reason I am where I am today is because of their willingness to take me in. Sequoia graduated high school a couple weeks before she turned 17, and on her 17th birthday, she incorporated her first company. She had started a magazine in high school already called HY for Houston Youth, which eventually folded. But at 19, she started a second magazine called After Dark, which was a nightlife magazine. It was really just an excuse for me to go and party and get into nightclubs for free. And like, without having to be carded, because they just assumed the owner of the magazine was old enough. Sequoia had a knack as an entrepreneur, but it wasn't easy. After graduating, she'd moved out of her grandpa's house, so she was on her own financially. You know, my first five years of my company, I'm surprised I even made it work. I had lawsuits. I had (laughs) debt, like to the point where like I would call the debt collector and be like, hi, this is Sequoia. I'm just letting you know I don't have any money right now. (laughs) Like it took years and lots of massive mistakes. At 20, Sequoia caught a big break, which wound up shifting the nature of her business. The magazine was doing a feature on the rap scene in Houston, and she met the rapper Slim Thug. 
Like I had heard his stuff on the radio before and I really liked it. And we became friends and just chatted. And he was like, yo, you publish magazines. Could you publish a book for me? And I was like, yeah, I could figure that out, I guess. He's like, I want to write a book called How to Survive in a Recession. And I went over to his house one day and smoked some weed with him and hit record. And three hours later had the book on tape. Sequoia figured out how to turn the tape into a book and publish it. You know, there was a really nice article in Huffington Post. And then suddenly I'm looking at Time Magazine and there's this spread in Time Magazine about how Houston rapper Slim Thug reaches out to the urban youth and teaches them about financial advice. And then suddenly we had an astronomical amount of sales and Barnes & Noble's called me and said, hey, how can we order this book? Before I knew it, I had a publishing firm. And I've been doing book publishing ever since. From the moment she'd arrived in Houston, Sequoia had chosen not to be in touch with either of her parents. Both her mom and dad did try to contact her. Her dad sent emails every month, but she'd set up a filter that sent them straight to a spam folder. Instead, her parents kept up on her through her grandfather and her brother, who'd wound up going to art school in San Francisco. Sequoia would go visit him there on a regular basis, and Denali also came to Houston. He was always the good kid, the one who didn't get in trouble, the peacemaker who was sweet to everyone and never severed contact with anybody. Art was his number one passion, but he was also an incredible skier who'd take a 30-foot drop and do a full upside-down 360 flip in the air. And he was a talented mountaineer who did expeditions with his dad. He was also a strikingly beautiful young man. I don't remember one of my friends growing up who didn't have a crush on my big brother. And I remember visiting him in San Francisco when he was in art school. I was like, Denali, what's wrong with your hair? He like shaved half of his head. So it was kind of like a half mullet. And one of our friends was like, it's because he's the most handsome man in the entire art school and he wanted to look weird like the other art kids. So he'd cut his hair into half of a mullet. Denali would plead with Sequoia to soften towards their dad, who kept trying to contact her and wanted to meet. And Sequoia finally agreed. She hadn't spoken to her dad in six years by then, and she would never see him alive again. I was staying at my brother's, and I remember waking up in the morning and we were brushing our teeth together, and there's something so amazing about, like, a sibling connection, and um, I really miss them. I remember stepping out, and there was Dad's van parked in the driveway, right in front of the driveway. And the door opened. There was like a big MSIG logo on the side of the van. Marty Schmidt International Guiding that had K2 as a picture of it and said, climbing and skiing the world's most amazing mountains in one lifetime. And then I remember the van door opening and Dad bouncing out with his Jesus sandals and his short shorts and no top on. And... He was so excited. He was literally bouncing up and down. And he, like, went to hug me, and I ducked the hug. And I remember calling him Marty, and I I just remember being very somber, saying, good to see you, Marty. Through the entire sit-down with coffee, Denali was just, like, back and forth smiling between dad and me. He looked like a kid in a candy store. He was just so happy to see us together, even though I was like 
being a total bitch with every answer that dad would ask me. I remember at one point he asked me like, what are you doing with your money? Are you being smart with money? And I remember being like, you don't have the right to know that information. Kind of ping-ponging every comment that came. And he had like foam on the top of his cappuccinos. And when we were kids, he would sprinkle the sugar on the top and hand us a spoon. And we would get to eat the foam off the top with sprinkled sugar on top. And I remember when we were having coffee, there was the layer of foam and he sprinkled some sugar on top and pushed a spoon towards me. And I ignored it and took a shot of my espresso. He was like, I'm really sorry that you feel that I hurt you. But you have to understand that you were a really difficult kid to deal with. And... I just remember being so infuriated by that answer. <laughs> being like, that is not an apology. <laughs> That's like saying, I'm really sorry you feel that way. <laughs> like, <laughs> But that was just my dad, you know, like he wasn't going to give you exactly what you wanted in the way that you wanted it. He struggled in the horizontal world and he succeeded in the vertical world. And that was part of his struggle, basic human interactions, like being able to say, I fucked up. I'm super sorry. And I remember, like, at that point, I kind of broke it down for him. And I was like, I was a child. You were an adult. This is how the situation should have gone. But I do remember him saying that he was proud of me for starting a company. Dad had a camera, and he asked somebody to take a photo. I still have that photo. I remember I hugged him goodbye. That was like something he was very, very happy about. And I remember like the smell when I hugged him. Dad had a really unique smell. And I remember feeling like there was a possibility to start a relationship. And for weeks after that, he continued to write me emails. And I would send very one-worded responses But I was sending responses, which was the first time in almost six years. And then I just didn't hear from him again for about eight months. It was about four o'clock in the morning my time. I was up because I had just gotten home from a nightclub and my phone rang. And I remember I was a little bit drunk and... He said, hey, Sequoia, it's dad. And I said, Marty, it's four o'clock in the morning. And he said, oh, sorry, sorry, I forgot about the time difference. I'm here in Nepal and I just summited Everest and it was amazing. And he said, I just wanted to see how you're doing and say hi. And Denali and I, I'm, I'm heading to Pakistan to meet him. And Denali and I are about to go on K2 together. And... The last words I ever spoke to him were, if you get my brother killed, I will fucking murder you. And then I hung up the phone. And that was the last thing I ever said to him.
The next time Sequoia got an unexpected call, it wasn't from her dad. I was at my grandfather's for dinner, and I remember we had finished dinner and I was going upstairs to paint my nails and watch a chick flick with Barbie. And I remember as I was walking up the stairs, I got a phone call and I ignored it from a mutual friend of me and dad and Denali's. And then I got a second phone call and I ignored it. And then I got a third phone call while I was at the top of the stairs. And I answered it. And it was Lance, who was really close to my dad and Denali. And I remember him saying, Sequoia, there was uh, an avalanche on K2. And your dad and brother were killed. And I just remember dropping the phone and screaming. I remember I couldn't stop screaming. And then Grandpa ran in and Barbara ran in. And they asked me what happened. And I just, all I could say was, Dad and Denali are dead. They were killed in an avalanche on the mountain. That was part one of The Schmitz. You can listen to part two, in which Sequoia finds a way to turn tragedy into positive change for herself, though not easily, on Strangers. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And also at patreon.com slash strangerspodcast, where you can access Leah Tao's complete catalog of incredible stories, both new and old. Sequoia Schmidt is the author of two books and the publisher of many others. You can find her at sequoiaschmidt.com. This episode was produced by Leah Tao. Paul Drew Smith made the music and mixed the episode. The story advisor was Christina Tyson. This episode of The Outside Podcast was brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonder of Belize at TravelBelize.org. We'll be back in two weeks.